What does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? What challenges do we face? What opportunities lie before us? And what threats exist to our freedom to live our faith in the public square? Join us today as we discuss those questions and more with the Archbishop of Baltimore, William E. Lorry. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And today we're going to be talking about being Catholic in America today. And I'm joined by our regular panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology in the New Evangelization, again here at Franciscan University. And we are so pleased to welcome our very special guest, uh, Your Excellency, the Archbishop of uh, Baltimore, William E. Laurie. Uh, previously, you were the bishop in Bridgeport, Connecticut, That's right. and then an auxiliary bishop in Washington, D.C. Is that right? Okay. All true. All true. Okay, a guilty as charged. <laughs> and, and, uh, but you're also, uh, you've got your M.A. Uh, from uh, Mount St. Mary's, and you've got your uh, sacred uh, theology degree uh, from the Catholic University of America. That's correct. All right, well, and, and you're also the uh, Supreme Chaplain of the Knights of Columbus, which is true, wonderful, wonderful. True again, true again. And, 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 all, and somewhat pertinent to our topic today, you're the Chairman of the U.S. Bishops' Conference on Religious Liberty, the Committee on uh, Religious Liberty. That's right. Yes, yeah. yes. So, you well, really did your homework. That's right. Well, <laughs> I, you know, it, a lot of homework to do. It's a lot. Right. It's a lot. It's very impressive, but you also, uh, you're no stranger to Franciscan University, so it's, it's a joy to welcome you back here Thank on you. our campus. Good to be back. Thank yes, you. yes. Well, uh, on today's topic, um, if you could just frame for us a little bit, uh, what does it mean to be a Catholic in America today? Well, that means a lot of things. That's right. Um, it, it, it certainly means um, that, uh, first of all, it's an increasingly diverse church. Uh, I certainly see this in my ministry in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. I see, for example, as in many parts of the country, a growing Latino population, but right. also African immigrants, many others. We've always been a church of immigrants. I think there might have been a period when we thought we had uh, transcended our immigrant period, but that's not true. Secondly, I, I think that for some, sadly, to be Catholic today, a means to have a kind of a general, sentimental, on again, off again. Cultural. Cultural attachment mm. uh, to the church but not really a, a participation in the life of the church. And then for others, thankfully, I think there are those who understand that what the church teaches uh, brings out the very best in our culture, but is also, in doing that, deeply countercultural. And they understand that to be a faithful Catholic today, you have to do so intentionally, and you have to do so on the basis of a real personal adherence mm. to the person of Jesus Christ, and you have to be willing 
uh, to bear witness to this. Mm -hmm. So it's a quite a broad spectrum, I would say. <laughs> but uh, I experience those three realities mm -hmm. day in and day out. Mm -hmm. So, and if you could compare, looking back 50 or 100 years uh, to what a Catholic in America looked like uh, versus today, um, and, and you know, if so, you know, what has really changed in that time frame? Well, I can't quite remember back 100 <laughs> years ago, but, uh, but, but when you think about 100 years ago, uh, the church was coming into its own. Right. My predecessor in Baltimore was Cardinal Gibbons. Cardinal Gibbons, in many ways was in those days the leader of the hierarchy and the church was growing rapidly with the uh, arrival of immigrants. It was establishing institutions, colleges, universities, and you could see a, a growing um, a church that was uh, coming of age. Um, and uh, that church very much had its own culture. It had very much its own identity. Uh, and and it, was, it was strong in many ways. Still not trusted or particularly liked right. by the culture, but it was there undeniably. 50 years ago, and of course, um, a couple things were happening. The immigrant church of the late 19th century and early 20th century had assimilated. So uh, those uh, folks who came over here and worked jobs and got their kids into college, these uh, young men and women had graduated, been through World War II, founded their families, and were coming into their own with a broader degree of cultural acceptance. We had a Catholic president, we had Vatican II, and there seemed to be a moment of real comedy with, with mm -hmm. the culture. And that always feels really great. I remember it. I've lived through that. But it always has hidden dangers. Hmm. Also, when I was growing up, for example, and part of my vocation came from here, Tuesday nights I'd be watching Bishop Fulton Sheen right. on television, prime time, just opposite Milton Berle. <laughs> And um, it, was, it, was, it was a kind of an amazing time. Yes. And um, so there were, just to sum up, cultural props. Gotcha. Um, I grew up in a suburban little town, and on Sunday morning, all the sedans and station wagons backed out of the driveway and went to church. <laughs> cultural props were great. Vocations, wanted to be a priest, that was thought to be a great thing. Right, right. A religious, a great thing. Uh, it didn't have the foundation it needed to survive well what happened later, yes. but it looked pretty good and it felt pretty good, I have to say. So, yeah. so there's a lot of cultural supports for the church living uh, at that part of the faith. And great enthusiasm about the council. We all felt right. the church had, um, produced these 16 beautiful documents. We were speaking about the spirit of the council. We were thinking about the changes would make us even more relevant to the culture we were in and that we could only see strength 
upon strength. But undeniably, in the immediate aftermath of that council, I think the period of disillusion set in. And for some, uh, it's been going on for a long time. It yes. has grown increasingly bitter and polarizing. Mm -hmm. uh, a flashpoint, I, I think, would be that Fulton Sheen image yeah. that, that you trot out. In the 50s, everybody was watching him. Mm -hmm. I think on CBS, yes. he rivaled Milton Berle, for heaven's sake. Nowadays, there's just us, and nobody's <laughs> watching us. I mean, there's much to deplore uh, in what has happened since that halcyon period when everything seemed to be nailed down. Yes, but underneath of that, and, uh, and, and I think the reason things turned so quickly was the kind of simmering beneath the surface. Yeah. Uh, there, were, there were currents, and many of them I think of a philosophical nature. Um, maybe a, a, a version, a, a version of Thomism that wasn't intellectually sturdy enough for what was to follow. Uh, sometimes we also, as we came of age, uh, we began to go well beyond our Catholic borders for education and would import ideas okay. of utilitarianism, of relativism, um, that, that pragmatism, that were a little bit foreign. And, and so there were things bubbling. Yeah. You know, I think part of the problem is that we set the 1950s up as the norm. Yeah. When we ought to recognize what an incredible exception that period it was. was. Yeah. We were flush with the success of the, the victory of World War II. We were prospering with a, a president who had been a general, who had won the victory in Europe, the crusade. Mm -hmm. You know, anti-communism was sort of the, the bond, you know, and it might seem minimal now in retrospect to think that we had a common enemy. So Republicans and Democrats, you know, shared a certain passion when it came to freedom and all of that. And so I think what we need to recognize is no, not only that we had a shallow foundation, yeah. but we also had an exceptional moment. Yeah, because you begin going back 100 years you know, and beyond. And Baltimore, of course, in Maryland had a great legacy, not only of Catholic faith, but also of persecution. Sure did, yeah. It's never been, you know, uh, the norm has never been this welcome that is sustained by a culture that just cannot say enough good things about the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. It's always been a kind of yeah. unsteady balance. And so yeah, we yeah. are children of God in America. We're citizens, but we're missionaries as well. Right. And so we've got to be countercultural and at the same time figure out how do we enter into this culture and engage it constructively. And that has never been easy. Yeah. You know, every year in the Office of readings, um, there comes up this letter to Dionysus. Oh, one of my And in that letter to Dionysus, we, we talk about the, it, it, the, the author talks about the fact that Christians uh, do not ad adopt strange modes of dress. Uh, they follow, in general, the, the moral customs of the place. They work, they raise families. And yet, they are uh, strangers at home. Yeah. Yeah. They are travelers through a foreign land. Mm. And, uh, and goes on to say what some of the travails are. Right. And I do think that part of, part of what happens is that if we get too comfortable yeah. in the culture, um, we set ourselves up
uh, for failure. Right, right. We lose a sense of mission. We get a sense that we have arrived. Now, a complacency almost. Complacency. Yeah. And Baltimore is a perfect, I'm glad you brought it up. It's a because laboratory. <laughs> we, we, the, the whole colony in Maryland was founded in 1634 as a place of religious toleration. For, and then in, in 1649 that was in, codified by the assembly. But not too many years later, we had the glorious revolution in England, right. yeah. and we were illegal, and we had priests uh, saying mass surreptitiously in houses, and you get to the, um, to the revolution. Yeah. The wealthiest man in, in the colonies was Charles Carroll, yeah. but he was not in a position to hold public office. He couldn't even vote. <laughs> he couldn't vote. Right. Yeah. And, and so we, we, we realized that it was a wonderful thing that happened right. when our country was established and we got the First Amendment. Yeah. But it was always uneasy. When John Carroll, our first archbishop, built the first cathedral uh, in Baltimore, he understood that if he built a Gothic church with stained glass windows, it would probably be burned down. <laughs> so he elected to build a building that looked like the U.S. Capitol, <laughs> neoclassical, with clear windows. Yeah. So you could see we weren't doing strange things. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, I remember being struck by that when I visited uh, the cathedral. Yeah. Yeah, what's going on? Why isn't it neo-Gothic? Mm -hmm. yeah. But that's, that's plausible. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I Interesting. also like your reference to Cardinal Gibbons, you know, because mm -hmm. Baltimore is also the flashpoint for what most Catholics who have grown up both before and after the council, the Baltimore Catechism. Right. Absolutely. Know? And here you are as the Archbishop in Baltimore and also one of the leaders in the whole catechetical renewal in the United States, embracing the new evangelization, which is new precisely because of the need to re-evangelize those who have been de-Christianized. And so it really is a great catechetical program, mm -hmm. not just didactic teaching, but bearing witness, as Pope Paul VI would emphasize, but really invigorating Catholics who have really become so assimilated. Yeah. You know? That's, that is the challenge. I mean, what's new about it is that we have to re-evangelize, to use an older term, mm -hmm. the baptized, confirmed, communion, Catholic, Right. Yep. Sitting in the pew or not, and increasingly not, right, yeah. right, and, and and open their hearts uh, to Christ so that they fall in love. Yeah, right. That's the name of the game. That's the challenge. And then, uh, once the encounter with Christ has occurred, what the church believes and teaches makes a lot of sense. To that's right. Puts it all in the right context. Well, that's the place exactly. where the encounter happens. Uh, exactly. That privileged setting. Uh, where the body uh, is to be found, the bride. Uh, and we have to sort of uh, reintroduce her uh, to her own children. Yes. And, I mean, Maryland, uh, Mary was deposed from that land. It's time that she uh, was permitted to return. Yeah, and I want to pick up on this point uh, after this next segment as the opportunities that lay before us as Catholics in America. You're watching Franciscan University Presents. Just looking at the statistics of the amount of clergy and religious we have back maybe 15, 50 years ago and what we have today, it's clear that the laity have to perform a stronger role in the church just because we need 
more people to be active in the faith. This summer, I worked in a very secular environment and I live in a secular area and my faith was in the minority. So um, I realized that the people who are against the Catholic faith are more verbal and uh, take more action on what they believe is their truth. But as Catholics, we should be the ones presenting the truth of Christ in a positive, encouraging light because we have the real truth of Christ and His church in our lives. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about uh, being a Catholic in America today with uh, Your Excellency, Archbishop of Baltimore, William Lurie. Uh, thank you for again for being with us. Um, so we've kind of set the stage a little bit of some of the challenges, but I, I want to ask go a little bit deeper first. What do you think are some of the greatest threats to religious liberty uh, today in America? Um, perhaps the greatest one is that most people in the West and in America do not think religious liberty hmm. is under siege. Mm -hmm. uh, why? You know, the churches are open, our institutions are still functioning, no one has been arrested yet. Right. And so people think it's business as usual that we're wrangling over uh, either bureaucratic matters like insurance and benefits. Uh, or they feel that uh, the presenting issues, e.g. into what contraception, are things that uh, people have decided on their own anyway, and so why don't we move on? So that's one thing. Yeah. I think um, as you look at the actual existential threats that are coming at us, however, uh, far and away, uh, I think that uh, the, the advent of same-sex marriage and its legalization yes. has presented tremendous challenges. Why? Because the understanding of marriage is written in to the law all over the place. Yes. And when, when that is redefined, it upends so much in the law. What it upends for us uh, is the freedom to hire Mm -hmm. Those who believe as we do mm. in the importance of the family and marriage as between one man and one woman. It affects licensure, uh, such as adoption agencies and social service agencies. It, it will also eventually uh, include accreditation, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's uh, social service programs or high schools and, and all of that. The uh, face of this, or the, the, the mantra here, is that the church is discriminatory, that we are as good as Jim Crow. What we have to be able to say is that no, the shoe is really on the other foot. It's people of faith, it's people who believe in traditional marriage, who are being discriminated against, and not just as individuals, although that's certainly true if you think about the baker 
way back when, who right. was fired one hundred and thirty-five thousand uh, dollars for, for not baking the cake for right. the wedding. Right. Um, but also our institutions, yeah. and our institutions do a world of good. Right, right. And yet they, this this is something that is. And it, it's dangerous. really vital, I think, that the defense we mount of marriage reach onto the plane, really, of metaphysics. It's not just the positive law. It's not simply the observance of, of a moral custom. We're talking about the order of nature. That's or something, something that was designed deliberately by God from the beginning. That's what we're trying to uphold. Exactly right. I mean, to me, and, and, and it's even those who would like to defend traditional marriage often simply talk about it uh, in, in surely practical terms. It is true. Having a mom and dad yeah. is a lot better for the kids. Right. That's all true, and we have to uphold that and say it from the rooftops. But it's, it goes to who we are as human beings. Yes. Made in the image of God, male and female. Uh, he created us and, and, and sent us to fill the earth and subdue it. You know, so often the training we get for me in the 80s corresponded to the challenges we faced at that point. And so now, 15, 20, 25 years later, it's sort of like the equipment doesn't work. We're not going to reinvade Normandy just because we can. We have to really face the challenges. You can go to the store and choose a cross for jewelry, but you don't get to choose the crosses that God sends you. And right now, I would say, he has sent us some challenges, the likes of which we never imagined in the 80s or even possibly in the 90s. I do want to speak in defense of two things. Number one is EWTN. <laughs> I want to say that I would prefer a network like this to CBS and an Emmy award-winning Fulton Sheen because the challenges we face could not ever be addressed adequately, even if we had two or three Bishop Sheens on. It really is a, a, a catechetical program that has to be comprehensive 24-7. The other thing I would speak in defense of is Thomism. I'm a Thomist, and yet I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you were saying, that as awesome as the philosophy and theology of St. Thomas is and was, it wasn't developed adequately with the, with the dynamic openness to being that Aquinas himself had. Mm -hmm. And I think what we have to recognize is that this challenge as to the definition of marriage is not only a call to go back and develop a metaphysic and a philosophy of nature and get that straight for ourselves and others, but perhaps even more to grasp the beauty of the sacramental grace of matrimony. That it's not just a contract in the natural law. It's not just a sacred covenant in the Old Testament. It becomes a sacrament in the new law. Not only a sign that shows us Christ's love for the church, but an efficacious sign that enables us to love in a way that is not merely human, but godlike. And I remember when I was a doctoral student just entering the church at Marquette, I had a Jesuit professor teaching a course on law. Uh, we were discussing Newhouse's book uh, on the public square, the naked public square, and he just made a comment. I think he interrupted his own lecture. He said, you know, if Catholics simply live the sacramental grace of matrimony mm -hmm. for 40 years, he said, I think the net effect would be the conversion of our culture. Right. And then he said, but I digress. And then he went back to the yeah. lecture and I didn't go with him. I just thought, that's amazing. He's right. St. John Paul II said that prophetically yeah. back in the 80s, but um, perhaps not even realizing what it would be like now. There's a, it's a hard sell in the culture, but I'll tell you what, everybody um, is, is, is looking for love. That's right. 
and everybody is looking for meaning. And I think if we kind of dig down to that very fundamental human level and begin talking about marriage linking up uh, our need for meaning, our, mean, our, our, our need for love, yep. and our desire uh, to, to see our kind uh, continue to, to live lives of hope. I, I think we can begin to find the language of a new apologetic. I think that's the key. The right. inner logic of love yeah, is the right. only thing yeah. that explains everything, especially those things that don't seem to make any sense to people today. And likewise, the beauty of truth, not just its compelling demonstrability, mm -hmm. but to show that there is an inherent beauty to the truth. Once you experience it, yeah. then you can present it not just, again, in didactic terms as a teacher, but bearing witness to the experience of the truth and its beauty. Well, what, we don't need to feel the least bit inferior or nervous uh, when the public debate unfolds because we have all the advantages. Mm -hmm. We are on the side of life. We, we profess belief in a God whose name is I am who am, ising, right. being, and he's love. So people want love, okay, here's the source of love. That's right. So That's right. why not turn to him? That was the Baltimore Catechism. I, I don't know that things have changed fundamentally. Why was I made? So that I might know, love, and serve God, and thus be happy with him in the next world. That's the message that we need to disseminate, and, and it appeals to the human heart. That's it's right. the same heart everywhere. And, and maybe this is already getting to a, a question I wanted to ask, but uh, you know, the American culture really looks at the Catholic Church and says it has nothing to offer the modern day. It's, it's, it's an antiquity uh, you know, in our culture. But we know that's not the truth. And, and I think this is, this is already beginning uh, the answer here, but mm -hmm. you know, what does the church, because if we're talking about religious liberty, religious liberty for what? What are we offering sure. this culture, this world? Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the goods, if you will, that we well, offer society? a couple of things. First of all, in terms of freedom, we offer freedom for excellence, as, mm -hmm. as uh, uh, Survey Spinkers, who's my far and away favorite moral theologian, would say. Freedom for that which is good, true, coherent, and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's number one. So to use your freedom well. But number two, uh, what is it that every human person wants to be loved and to be loved in infinitely? And it is our clarion proclamation mm -hmm. of the person of Christ. It's what Benedict said, we become Christian uh, not because of some high moral ideal, right. but it's an event, it's the encounter with a person. Same with Pope Francis. And so we offer that infinite love that people are hungering for and they're expressing it in some pretty disturbing ways, but that's what they're expressing. When we're out there pastorally, we have to believe that deeply. Right. And then I think the third thing is uh, when it comes to education, when it comes to social services, when it comes to health care, mm. if I may brag a little bit, nobody does it better. Yeah, yeah. If, if no one's been doing it longer. In Catholic, in, in, in the city of Baltimore, if we didn't have Catholic Charities, which is the largest social service agency in Maryland, non-governmental, I don't know what would happen. Yeah, that's powerful. So we're in and of the city, we're with the poor, and we're bearing witness to the gospel yeah. by acts of service and charity. 
You know, what you just said, going back to the first or second point about, well, you quoted my favorite Dominican moral theologian, Father Pinkers, who had a hand in the catechism as well as in uh, Veritatis Splendor. But this distinction between freedom from and freedom for, mm -hmm. we often confuse means and ends. And, and freedom is really a means to an end. Freedom for virtue, freedom for excellence, freedom for that kind of flourishing mm -hmm. that is our longing. You can't have it without freedom, but you can have freedom without that flourishing. Mm -hmm. And so when we speak about the church's liberty, mm -hmm. we're not talking just about a freedom from governmental constraint, although that's critical. Yes, yes. But we're talking about a freedom for an excellence, a flourishing, not just for individual members, but for people outside the church. And not just for the church institutionally, but for the whole culture that is going to flourish more mm. if we are given these freedoms. Yeah. Well, you make that point, I think, in that piece that you uh, delivered. You uh, identify Karavatiwa at the council as having said, look, liberty and truth must go together. That's, That's right. it. So That's during right. the debates for the Declaration on Religious Liberty, which is turning 50, um, there was a, a strain, a kind of a juridical strain, advanced uh, by John Courtney Murray that religious freedom, judicially speaking, is freedom from coercion. True enough. Right. And I certainly welcome freedom from coercion <laughs> to, do, right. to do the work of the church. But then Wojtyla said truth and freedom have to be linked. And Wojtyla is John Paul. Yeah, yeah, John Paul. Clear, yeah. So without, without, uh, without truth there is no freedom. Right. Yeah. And the, the council fathers were so wise because they root religious freedom um, not in a positive right, Right. that is inscribed in, in a document, but in human nature, mm, mm, in yeah. human The nature. metaphysics and, of the human person. And so, so right. looking at, these are, these, are, these are huge, ultimate uh, gifts that, that the church is offering. When you look out at America today, do you see uh, more challenge or opportunity? Do, do you see a, uh, is the culture ready uh, for us in any way? Is it ripe, if you will? <laughs> is the, yes, the culture is always ripe. Here's the one thing I will never, that, that will get under my, my skin, is when somebody says, well, we can't evangelize because of the culture. Mm. Didn't St. John Paul II teach us eloquently, and didn't Cardinal George teach us that, that that's, that's the vineyard, mm. right. that's the soil. And the idea is not to do away with the culture, but to transform it from within. Mm. I would say that no, even though there are many uh, difficult um, challenges in our culture, there's plenty of fertile soil, including the millennials. Mm. Yes, yeah. the millennials uh, might challenge, challenge us, push us, pull us, um, but um, deep down, they're looking for what we got. Right. Uh, I mean, why, right. why should today's culture be less amenable to conversion than, than Rome, yes. the first century? Mm. They were ferociously hostile yes. to the Christian life. Right, right. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. I really like St. Jose Maria Escriva because of his um, philosophy on how our life, everything we do within our particular lifestyle is rooted in Christ and how, whether that be our job,
just being at home with our family, going out and playing sports, all that should be rooted in Christ. My model for living is St. Clair of Assisi. A group of marauders were coming into her convent and she held up the Eucharist and they all turned around all of a sudden, an army of people against her. And I really, um, that resonates in my heart of trying to stand up for the faith and be courageous and not back down for what anybody else is saying or doing and just knowing that having the truth of Christ in my heart is what can sustain me and can be spread to others. I am a communication arts major, the president of Film Club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN, and in a lot of other schools you're not going to have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and a frequent confession and things like that, because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know, can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Um, our camera and the equipment here are being managed by our students. Um, uh, this is in our communication arts studio. Uh, and our regular panelists are our theology faculty here at Franciscan University. Um, Your Excellence, we, we've been talking about Catholics, uh, being Catholic in America today. Um, so so let's, look about, let's look at what is it um, to be a witness um, how are we called to be a witness today as Catholics in America? Uh, to me, um, I, I think we have to be um, more than practicing Catholics, although I urge everyone That's the baseline. listening <laughs> here to be a practicing Catholic. Uh, it's more than supporting the works of the church, although mm. Uh, who more than the advancement director of Franciscan <laughs> University would hold out for that. Uh, for me, uh, and I think the Pope is telling us this, and began with, uh, certainly with Pope Paul VI, uh, Catholics who are, have opened their hearts to Christ, mm. who have had the personal encounter, who have allowed the Lord, His truth, His love, His reality, uh, to uh, invade them, people who believe that Christ uh, loves them, died for them, walks with them, mm. enlightens them, mm -hmm. uh, and who are willing to witness to their fellow, the, their family members first and foremost. Right. We all got family <clears throat> members alienated from the faith, mm -hmm. uh, who are willing to bear witness to this at work, mm. and who are willing to bear witness to their fellow Catholics. Uh, some uh, Sherry Waddell tells us that if we had 10 or 12 intentional disciples willing to go on mission and you increase that number year by year, pretty soon you'd have parking lot difficulties yeah. in your church. That's a good problem I to have. I pray for that every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in terms of parish life uh -huh. uh, and faith formation, um, you know, what needs to change in order to get there? I mean, yeah, I love the term, you know, in, invade your life uh, with an encounter with Christ. Well, I, I, here I will go right to, to the joy of the gospel, mm. where Pope Francis so clearly calls for the missionary transformation of our parishes. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people say, well, I go to the parish to be fed. Yes, of course you do. Mm -hmm. Fed on the Word of God, fed on the body and blood of Christ. 
but the parish uh, is, is, is not simply a place where people come to when they need something. Right. Mm. It has got to be, it has got to undergo what the Pope calls a missionary transformation. The parish itself has to embrace as, uh, as its identity, its deepest identity, and as its fundamental mission to proclaim the name of Christ convincingly, lovingly, Everybody on staff, beginning with the priest, mm. has to show that there's skin in the game. Right. And then, yeah. because if you preach in a detached way, who cares? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And out you go, and you're out there to bring people in. And it's not just to fill up people in the pews, important right. as that is, and I'm all in favor of that. It is to bring people to the pews because they too have fallen in love with the Lord, maybe not fully, yeah. maybe the invasion is an ongoing process, it always is, Yes, yes, yes. but they've lowered their defenses yeah. and, and they've invited yeah. the Lord. This, this move from pastoral maintenance to mission, yeah. you know, we have a legacy now, I think we're almost too close to recognize its uniqueness. Mm -hmm. Going back to Blessed Paul VI, I mean, even before Vatican II was over, he was going to the Holy Land and mm -hmm. Portugal and Turkey afterwards yes, and then yeah. Sri Lanka, you know, and, and so many places. Yes, the Philippines. And that, homily, that homily in the Philippines about oh, Christ, you know. Yeah. And even Indonesia at the point where it had become the single largest Islamic yeah. country, you know, outside of the Arab world. You know, and I think it's a, a call to us to recognize that we're to go out into the world and uh, to get out of our comfort zones. And that's never easy, but it's more vital now than ever before because the temptation to become insular and to kind of create ghettos is certainly understandable, mm -hmm. but it's going to implode if we continue on. You know, it really is. Right. And I think at the same time, we have to recognize that if we go out, we ought to go out with reasonable expectations. You know, just as we can create a false standard in the 50s, you know, thinking that the norm for American Catholics ought to be Fulton Sheen winning an Emmy. No, you know, that was the exception. Likewise, when it comes to engaging culture, you know, thinking of the Edict of Milan or the conversion of Constantine or Justinian or, or the grand moments of Christendom mm -hmm. and making that the norm instead of recognizing, you know, I remember this one guy named Paul Hasker, a professor of Indian culture and history, one of Ratzinger's favorites because he converted near the end of his life. And wrote, and, and wrote about the Thomas Christians in India who were never imperial, you know, victorious in creating a, a Catholic empire, but they thrived for millennia. And we can do that without necessarily taking back Christendom. Mm -hmm. We can thrive in a culture that can be, in a way, antagonistic, and yet we could also be like leaven, transforming even if we never create yeah, a new Christmas. Uh, two images come to mind uh, in, in, in listening to you. Uh, one is the image of the colonnade at St. Peter's mm -hmm. designed by Bernini. Mm -hmm. It, it extends outward, it's exoteric, expansive, oh, like a mother yeah. who wishes to embrace all of her children, especially the wayward and the weak. I mean, that, that image of the church that Augustine was so enamored of, this great net, this vast net thrown into the sea, mm -hmm. and, and you get as many as possible on board, and the angels can sort out uh, the good from the bad. The church's mission is, in a way, more modest. Just baptize everybody. Let, let God decide where they end up uh, on the other side of history. And, and a third image, uh, Pope Francis, when, when he used to come to Rome, uh, this is before he's, he became its pope, 
uh, would be drawn oftentimes to the Caravaggio mm -hmm. uh, painting at the Church of St. Louis, yeah. uh, the French church. Yeah. And I think maybe that's where the idea of mercy came to him and to announce a year of mercy because that finger extended by Jesus to this mad money guy, Matthew, mm, Matthew was meant yeah. to awaken a, a sense of longing for who knows what, but an awareness of his own wretchedness. Yeah. And that pretty much uh, describes all of us. We're all sort of mired in the muck. And that, I think, appeals to everybody. I'm a sinner. If I were a saint, then Christ would never have needed to come uh, to redeem me. Uh, the church is filled with sinners. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think that's the idea that we need to propose because it immediately, uh, I think, appeals to everyone. And you know, in the culture today, and this, is, this goes to evangelizing and very much in the culture where, where we're in, mm -hmm. people regard uh, the Catholic Church as a prime example as a very judgmental, harsh yes. yeah. uh, kind of an organization that doesn't live up to its own teachings. Mm. And so when the Pope comes along and says, you know, who am I? I'm a sinner loved by God and chosen by God. Uh, people listen. Uh, when a priest or, or a lay evangelist or a catechist shows that, that, that they're on the road that they need um, the Lord's love and mercy just as much as anyone they're working with, That's right. then you're believable. The millennials, especially, look at us and say, who really are these guys, you know? When they see this kind of willingness to be very honest about ourselves and our need for God's mercy, you know, then people will pay attention. Yeah, to, to picture the church as a hospital, right? A field yes. hospital, a field hospital, like a mash unit yeah. in Korea. Yeah. You know, I, I do think we struggle at times more than we realize with a sort of megachurch envy mm -hmm. that we wish we could be a spa. You know, we wish that our parishes would all be just thriving with, you know, spiritual athletes. And there's a time and a place for that, and we ought to cultivate it but not to the exclusion of this Augustinian insight yeah. that even the athletes themselves are, are like Matthew. We're, we're, we're needing to be called, we need to receive mercy. That medicine is not something we outgrow. Right, and, and I think the, the, uh, the beauty of what you shared and what the church has shared uh, through the ages is that you know, after that encounter, we are discipled or catechized, and then we're sent out on a mission. And, and everyone's mission is to, to go and make disciples of all nations but we all may have a particular mission in the world. Uh, many of those listening are, are lay who are out in the world, and our mission is in the, the marketplace, and we're bringing Christ, we're bringing that gospel, and we're also finding Christ there. Yeah. I uh, think the new evangelization is mostly carried out by the laity. Hmm. The family first and foremost, Yes. but then bringing it out into the wider culture, whether it's work, whether it's social circle, uh, or what. So they're the ones that are out and about. And in many ways, uh, what are we to do, we who are ordained or we who are working directly in and for the church, aren't we to equip the saints yeah. for the work of ministry? Isn't that what St. Paul told that's us right. to do? And I, that's what I see myself doing, yeah. is equipping people certainly evangelizing as well directly, but, but 
raising up and making it possible mm. and encouraging people to go out and do this. Mm. Have you seen any, uh, just in the archdiocese or elsewhere, like some, some fruits of, of these um, new movements or efforts uh, in whether the new evangelization or just kind of sending people out more uh, in that regard? No, you do. Um, uh, you see it um, in ways that are both big and small. Mm. And to your point, um, uh, for example, in some of the inner city parishes that are struggling in every possible way, you see a community that is there, that is connected, you know. Uh, sometime back we had real troubles in, in, in Baltimore, like many urban centers, and you see these uh, parish communities that are really connected with the community and with their zip code. Mm. Some of them come in from the suburbs to worship there, but they're connected. Yeah. See, we, have, we do have a, some very large churches. So the one that's very famous around the country, if not the world, is Nativity that's right. in Timonium. Rebuilt. <laughs> and and that's, that's undeniably uh, a place that has attracted a lot of people who otherwise probably wouldn't darken the door on the ch of the church. But, but I'm also seeing, for example, in the Basilica uh, of the Assumption, right downtown, the oldest cathedral in the United States. It's in a part of Baltimore called Mount Vernon. Mm -hmm. uh, young people have moved in. We, got, we already have the Peabody Institute. Mm -hmm. We have Hopkins. We have just a lot of young adults living there. And you see them at Mass on Sunday. And then when we go down to, we extend Mass down in a place called Mecochets. <laughs> and you can imagine what they serve at Mecochets. And you talk to these young people, wow, what a great thing to yeah. see, see their faith. You see it also in the vocations that are coming out now, too. Uh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, you that's do. So you do. Stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. We as Catholics just need to be faithful through the witness of our lives because we can't, it's not friendly to just go and you know, proclaim all these teachings that seem really hard without having any encounter with the faith first. So we need to witness to the Catholic faith and stay strong in the sacraments and then from that point we will be able to express our faith and stay strong in it. I think it's important that when you're engaged in a discussion with people who might not have any faith at all, that you remain loving and have Christian charity towards them while you're in this discussion, and that you need to listen to them as well, because if you're not willing to listen, then you won't be heard yourself. I'm in the 4 plus 1 program here for counseling. It is very academically challenging, but the classes are a lot of fun. The teachers do love what they teach, and they know their fields very well. If you're interested in mission, that's a big thing here. I did San Diego for two years. That was a youth ministry mission. There are a lot of opportunities here to be actively pro-life, praying outside the abortion clinic. There's a big group that goes to the March of Life here from campus. There's just so much you can do as far as faith goes. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic.
Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking today about being a Catholic in America today with uh, His Excellency Archbishop of Baltimore, William E. Lorry. Uh, Regis, could you uh, start us off? Yeah, a, a couple of things uh, sort of silt up. Uh, uh, I was much struck by the comment you made uh, uh, near the end of the last segment about the young people that you keep bumping into, uh, and they exude a kind of enthusiasm, a hunger for God that I, I hope is infectious. It, it certainly seems to have infected you. Mm. Uh, and that may be the witness that we're looking for, a witness of, of hunger and, and somehow satisfied by joy, sanctity. You know, your life is the only book that somebody is likely to read. As much as I respect uh, moral theologians, I don't know that we need yet another textbook in moral theology. We need uh, theologically uh, grounded people who have fallen haplessly in love with Christ and are prepared to transform the world on the strength of that friendship, that intimacy. The, the other uh, thought I had, uh, one of the questions in the script that you, you sent out uh, was asking, uh, are there any silver linings uh, in, in, in the face of all this hostility, mm -hmm. this impacted persecution that we now face? And I would say, sure, there is. One of the advantages of, of being persecuted is that it clarifies things. It forces one back to bedrock, which is where first questions uh, uh, may be found. And that happened a number of times in the history of the church. You might say, gosh, who wants to be alive during the Council of Nicaea? I mean, a dreadful time. And yet, a word, homoousion, forced the church to bedrock. And if it hadn't been for that, we might not quite know where to situate the word in relation to the Godhead. Uh, or the notion of Theotokos at the Council of Ephesus. Without that pressure, uh, maybe we would have been content to describe Mary as simply the mother of the human being, Jesus. And that's not enough. That doesn't carry the freight. Or at Trent, you know, one of my favorite councils, uh, the whole notion of sacrament, of transubstantiation. I mean, without that term being canonized in a way that forced the church back to first principles, mm. uh, we might not have the same clarity about the Eucharist. Nowadays, I mean, we're dealing with first questions concerning the meaning of the human person. And those are really big questions that we are forced by the culture to confront uh, in a new and vibrant way. And I remember a, an exchange between uh, Henri de Lubac and Carol Vatiwa way back in the late 1960s. And Carol Vatiwa, who was then Archbishop of Krakow, was telling his friend de Lubac that the crisis of the church mm -hmm. and the larger culture in which she finds herself is not really a moral crisis. Mm -hmm. It's metaphysical and it has to be answered not by sterile arguments but by what he called a recapitulation of the sacred mystery of the human person. Mm -hmm. That's what I think we need to bring to the table. Gay marriage has reached the most far-reaching revolutionary uh, 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 lanes in this culture. And yet it doesn't make people happy. That disconnect between truth and liberty is going to drive these people mad. And we've got to disabuse them of it, but not with syllogisms, but with the example of joyful men and women living a perfectly normal life and recapitulating 
the whole mystery of the human person. That's where the cutting edge is. Mm. Thank you, Regis. Scott? To bring that down, I think we have to experience the grace of conversion personally in an ongoing way. I remember my Catholic grandmother would sign all of her cards, Oceans of Love, and I never got that. As an evangelical, I experienced the rivers of living water, but they were rivers, you know. In becoming a Catholic, I've experienced an ocean, oceans of love. Conversion for us back then was a personal relationship with Jesus. And it is for Catholics too, but that's the starting point. You know, we we have evangelizing, then catechizing, and then sacramentalizing. It's like courting my wife, and then engagement, and then marriage. But I think we also need to experience that on the other side of being baptized, ongoing conversion is every bit as important. I remember coming across this book by Garrigou Lagrange on the three ages of the interior life. Purgative, illuminative, unitive, what's he talking about? And as I read it, I knew what he was talking about, what I needed desperately as a believer. I needed to convert like Peter needed to convert in an ongoing way. I think the more people experience the grace of ongoing conversion, the more the joy of the Lord is our strength and the joy of the gospel becomes more effective than arguments we deploy, proof texts we might quote. Mm. And I think if we open ourselves up to the new evangelization, not just to reach them, we are them, but for Christ to reach us ongoingly, I think that is way, the way that the metaphysical mystery of the person is going to be communicated without using the word metaphysical. Mm. Thank you, Scott. Excellency. A couple of thoughts occurred to me. I'm going to go back to the silver lining. Yes. Uh, the silver lining always for us is the Tertullian silver lining, that the uh, seed of the church is the blood of martyrs. Yeah. And, even, and, and let's think about the people who really are being martyred because they are Christian, those who are being beheaded, those who are uh, being dispossessed. And they should inspire us in the West not to let our human dignity, our liberties, not just religious freedom, but all of our liberties slip through our finger. And they should inspire us uh, to bear much more vigorous uh, witness uh, to the person of Jesus Christ uh, and, and, and to our faith. Mm. The second thing is that people often ask me, what can I do about religious liberty? Yes. Um, and I have three answers. Number one is pray. If there's anything important in life, whether it's vocations, uh, finding the right partner in life, whether it's health, whatever it is, you gotta pray for it. Religious liberty, as a country, we really need to pray for this. It should find its way into our petitions on Sunday, into our private prayer. And of course, every year we celebrate the fortnight of freedom, uh, which is the 14 days leading up to the 4th of July. It's really important. Second thing is to learn. How many people don't know mm-hmm. anything about Dignitatis Humanae, the church's teaching of religious liberty? or about our foundational documents. And so, of course, if we don't know what it is, it can easily be taken uh, away from us. And thirdly, we are citizens. And one of the things our faith teaches us is to be good citizens. Mm -hmm. And that means being engaged citizens. And sometimes, you know, um, we're all, especially those of us who are ordained, a little bit afraid that if we bring up a so-called political issue in church on Sunday, we're gonna get hammered. 
Uh, but we got to be able to talk about this, got to make our voices heard, and we got to uh, uh, make sure that, 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 that it's heard in sufficient numbers. Mm -hmm. So those would be the three things. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Um, if you've enjoyed today's program, we have a, a great handout to you from Archbishop Lori here on continuing the search for religious liberty. Um, it, really a great article. You can download it at faithandreason.com or uh, just for asking. Um, just going deeper on the subject, we, we have to realize that um, if we're fighting for religious liberty, we first have to have that faith. We have to have something worth fighting for. So as Scott and the Archbishop and, and, and Regis have all shared, we need to, to come into that renewed encounter because it's not a, a one-time event in your life. It's an ongoing, the Franciscans have this sense of ongoing conversion. Now we're always going deeper into that encounter with the, the triune God, uh, encounter with Him in the Eucharist. Uh, live your life wrapped in that encounter. But I also say that we are people of hope. And there's this great quote that I, I recently found uh, from St. Augustine, that so, uh, hope has two beautiful daughters. One is anger and the other is courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to make sure they don't remain that way. We are people of hope. We need to speak with one voice. We need to go out. We have a mission to share the beauty of the faith and defend our, our, our right uh, to live that, not simply have a right to worship in our churches, but a right to live that uh, throughout our, our public life. Thank you again for watching Franciscan University Presents. Um, the mission of Franciscan University is to form those who are gonna go out and transform the world for Christ. And I wanna invite you to be a part of that mission by taking a class here uh, on campus or through our online programs. Maybe you can join us at one of our dynamic summer conferences or join us on our pilgrimages to holy shrines around the world or be equipped uh, for the new evangelization through faithandreason.com. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381 or call 740-283-6357.